Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 52. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com, and our very special guest is Christopher Snowden. He's head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. He's the author of several books, including Velvet Glove, Iron Fist, A History of Anti-Smoking, The Spirit Level Delusion, and more recently, Killjoys, A Critique of Paternalism. He also writes for The Spectator, and his work focuses on pleasure, prohibition, and dodgy statistics. Welcome to the show, Christopher. It's nice to be on. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Thank you. Very good. Tell us a little bit about what drove you to write your first book, uh, Velvet Glove, Iron Fist, A History of Anti-Smoking, and more broadly, your disdain for the nanny state. Right. Yes. Well, that was 10 years ago now since that uh, came out, I guess about 13 years since I started researching it. So that focused mainly on the anti-smoking movement, but from a historical perspective. And I was just interested, really, around about 2005, 2006, when um, when we started having the conversation in a big way about a smoking ban in Britain. And I'd already been to a few countries where they had smoking bans in pubs. And I was a prolific smoker at the time and a prolific visitor of pubs. So this was a big concern to, uh, to me. And I guess what interested me most was... Like, where has this come from? Where's this campaign come from? Because I've never really met anyone who thought that we should be um, banning smoking in, in pubs at all. And so I started looking into um, initially who was leading the drive to ban smoking in Britain, but then look back a bit further in history. Um, because really, I expected it to be uh, an interesting and maybe a little bit quirky kind of a subject. And I thought that the kind of people who dedicate themselves to single issue causes are usually quite interesting. And so it proved, generally speaking, I mean, the the people who were actually leading the charge in 2005 were pretty much just kind of professional campaigners. But if you go back further in time, you can find really zealous anti-smoking movements almost from the day that Christopher Columbus stumbled upon it some of them upon tobacco in America. And um, there were some really savage characters. People would be put to death for it and be tortured and all sorts of things. Um, and it's ebbed and flowed throughout history. And I thought that was really quite interesting. And then that, of course, then led towards other uh, sort of single-issue public health campaigns or public morality campaigns. And um, and that got me into you know the, the drive against alcohol. Um, I then wrote a book later on about the war on drugs. Uh, and it's all the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of people usually, uh, and the same kind of arguments used for it. That's absolutely fascinating because around 2000, well, 2007, my daughter was born. And of course, um, around that time, the smoking ban came in and I was quite pleased to be honest that it had come in because I was at the time, you know, sitting in a restaurant, which was pretty smoky and I, my mind cast back to when you used to be able to smoke on the tube and it was fairly difficult to get a non-smoking compartment. And if you were in a smoking compartment on the tube in a confined area, it's like, seems like complete insanity now. Um, but I used to be a smoker. I'm now an ex-smoker. You're never a non-smoker after that point. And I, I, think, too, yeah. I think we're the worst in the sense that for some reason you're, um, you become very attuned to the smoke and it, it it's worse than non-smokers. Is what you're saying that the 
that people should just be free to have their own choices and not be told. Because obviously we know that smoking is bad for us and that's why I gave up. But you, you're just saying they should be free to do it wherever they want. And and then I've got the freedom of choice perhaps not to go to the restaurant that's smoky. Um, yeah, by and large, I would prioritise the property rights of restaurant owners and publicans over the preferences of people who don't like cigarette smoke. Yes, generally speaking, when we're dealing with government buildings um, or public transport, then you know I think that's a matter for the government. And I think it's perfectly reasonable if the government wants to say, look, we're not going to let people smoke on the tube or in libraries or in government offices. Um, but I don't see an argument for it really when it comes to down to private property. I think it should be up to the landlord to decide. In principle, people should be allowed to do what they want so long as they're not harming other people. Uh, it's a basic kind of liberal position. And issues like smoking, I think, are very interesting test cases for that. So in fact, all the areas I write about kind of uh, you know, generate passion on both sides. And you'll get libertarians saying, look, I'm really libertarian, but I really hate gambling. You know, I think that, you know, the fixed odds betting terminals or casinos are really exploitative. And um, a lot of people kind of make exceptions to their liberal principles. And one of the things I tried to do with my book, Killjoys, was really rigorously, you know, kick those kind of liberal ideas and see you know, is it right to have exceptions? Are there areas where, in fact, people shouldn't be allowed to do what they want? And I do conclude that yes, there are, you know, because I come at this really from the perspective of just mainstream economics, you know, not, not liberal or libertarian economics or heterodox economics, but just basic mainstream economics tells you that generally speaking, society works best when people are allowed to pursue their own preferences and desires, but there can be market failures. There can be areas where um, businesses know more about the product than the consumer, so the consumer is under-informed. There certainly are areas where there are negative externalities, where the actions of um, one consumer or one business puts costs onto other people, and there are ways to deal with that you know, within mainstream economics, um, including in some instances banning something entirely, but that is the nuclear option. Generally speaking, you don't need to do that. Generally speaking, you can have um, reasonable regulation that takes into account everybody's preferences so people can rub along as well as possible. But it's never going to be the case that smokers can smoke wherever they want, and it shouldn't be the case that non-smokers never come into contact with cigarette smoke, no matter where they are and, and, and on whose property they're on. You, met, you mentioned um, Killjoys, and it, it reminds me of a thing I came a quote I came across when I was doing, it would have been sort of... Um, not ancient history, but the history of the sort of Middle Ages and, and later. And it was a, it was a quote about the Puritans. It said that the Puritans were against bear baiting, not because of the suffering it gave to the bear, but because of the pleasure it gave to the audience. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, with the Puritans, there's there's a lot of truth in that. Um, I mean, that was one of the most notorious phases of killjoyism when Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas and all the rest of that stuff. Um, you, can't, you can't cancel Christmas. <laughs> no, it, it didn't go down very well. And of course, in the end, they, they got rid of him and brought back the king. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just one of many phases of this kind of po-faced uh, hatred of other people's pleasure. The Victorians had quite a strong middle class reform movement, which was very similar to the current public health 
crusade that we've seen in Britain over the last 20 years or so. The prohibitionist movement on alcohol in America was all part of the same kind of progressive cause of um, you know top-down management, really, again, a middle-class, upper-middle-class reform movement that was aimed at uh, stamping out not just alcohol, but they very quickly then moved on to cigarettes with the anti-cigarette league. There were people who were going against red meat and coffee. And you really see the whole thing play out almost word for word today. And it was my argument, I guess, in Velvet, Glove, Iron Fist, that this was a thin end of the wedge in whatever you feel about smoking. Um, If you drink alcohol or you consume tasty food, then you should be concerned about this because once the government decides that it is, it has a mandate to discourage using coercion, people from uh, engaging in risky habits, then there really isn't any obvious end point to it. And really, that's been borne out over the last 10 years that we have seen more of a campaign against alcohol. The campaign against obesity is far beyond anything any previous reform movement has um, been getting into in terms of trying to interfere in what people eat. And we've even seen recently a campaign against red meat on the basis of health and climate change, and to some extent, even a campaign against caffeine, because we've got this um, upcoming ban on people under the age of 18 buying energy drinks. So it really is playing out, you know, as they say, first time as tragedy, second time as fast. How would you deal with the, um, how would you deal with, say, the fast food industry then? I mean, if we take the, the point that people should be able to choose whatever they want to choose in terms of what they want to eat, but they may be making choices due to say low income and it may be affecting their health in a, in a negative way, which is then something that the, the national health service has to deal with. So the, that's not a, that's not a cost that's being borne by the fast food companies. That's a cost that's being borne by kind of everybody via the national health system. How how would you then, not regulate, but how would you deal with that that problem? Or do you do you see first of all, do you see that as a problem? And secondly, how would you deal with it? Well, I think the first step is to say what is a market failure? If there isn't a market failure, if people actually just really like fast food and they understand that it might make them obese and they know what the um, consequences of that are, then there isn't a market failure. There's just people going about their business and it's their bodies, their rules. Um, Potentially, there are market failures. Potentially, there are people who don't know that there are lots of calories in a Big Mac or a cream bun, but I kind of doubt it. Um, One of the parts of the government's obesity strategy is to put calorie counts in restaurants, which I think in principle is a very good idea because, you know, I think it's quite conceivable that there are people who don't know uh, quite how many calories are in certain food products. But to be fair, I think generally speaking, people know that, you know, uh, a big greasy hamburger has a lot of calories and a stick of celery doesn't. So probably people are well enough informed, but still it, it, it could be a good idea. The only issue actually with the calorie counts is it's going to be really difficult for the smaller businesses, the pubs and the restaurants. Any establishment that wants to have a dish of the day or change their menu around is basically not going to be able to because the, the cost of having every meal calorie counted um, is just going to be too high. But yeah, the, 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 that's a theoretical market failure. And the other one you mentioned is the um, the cost to the health service. And that is the main issue, the main market failure that gets raised uh, across the board, whether it's smoking or drinking or or food or even things like gambling, uh, will be told, you know, th- this is costing the state billions of pounds a year. We've got to do something. Well, there are several 
problems with that argument. The first is that actually a lot of the time the government isn't, in fact, losing any money. If you look at it in the round, if you if you don't use a partial equilibrium model, which the campaigners always do, in other words, they, they will look entirely and only at the gross costs. So you can work out, for example, how much type 2 diabetes is costing the NHS. You can work out roughly how many of those cases are caused by people who are obese, and then you can try and you can put a figure on the uh, cost of obesity-related type 2 diabetes. But what you'll never hear is how much is being saved. Um, you won't see the campaigners using a figure that accounts for what they call what should be called substitute diseases. So, so you've got somebody who dies of type 2 diabetes or lung cancer or liver cirrhosis or whatever the issue um, or the product may be causing, but you don't hear about, well, if they hadn't died of that, what would they have died of? And in reality, they would have died of something that cost probably about the same. In fact, it's quite likely they would have died of something that cost more because they would have got it later in life. They would have suffered for, with a chronic condition for longer. They would have been taking out their pension for longer and all the rest of it. So the the simple economic argument um, doesn't really stand up most of the time. Uh, certainly doesn't stand up with um, smoking because of the amount of tax smokers pay apart from anything. Now, with obesity, <clears throat> with the exception of the sugar tax, uh, we haven't got any kind of fiscal measure to recoup any of the costs, if the costs exist. So let's say that, that there is a cost um, from obesity every year. Uh, research from the Institute of Economic Affairs, which I didn't write, but which I did commission, found that that cost was at the most about £2.5 billion a year. So in the grand scheme of government spending, not a colossal amount, certainly not enough to bring down the NHS, which is often the claim. But still, it would be better not to be spending that money um, if we couldn't, even leaving aside the sort of the, the human uh, toll. The question is, how do you then, what, what do you tax? I mean, you've, you've mentioned fast food there straight away. How strong is the evidence actually that fast food is a cause of obesity? How strong is the evidence that people are going to McDonald's because they can't afford fruit and veg? Well, on the second point, non-existent. I mean, McDonald's is much more expensive pound for pound than you know getting some vegetables and cooking them up with some rice or pasta, much more expensive. Um, as for the evidence that fast food is a cause of obesity, it's very, very thin on the ground. Um, people are obese for all sorts of complex reasons, most of which actually don't even have anything to do with um, food per se, insofar as you know, physical inactivity is a massive driver of the rise of obesity over the years. And it's impossible really to, to point at a particular um, type of food or a particular part of the food sector and say that's the cause of obesity. So it's very difficult to know what to tax. Theoretically, the, the most kind of efficient way of doing it would be to tax obesity itself. In other words, to tax people on their body weight. But that, of course, would be you know uh, humiliating for the people involved and impractical in, in all sorts of different ways. But if you wanted to be serious about um, kind of internalizing the costs of obesity, you should be taxing fat people themselves rather than trying to tax one particular comp component of the diet like sugary drinks or Big Macs or cheese or whatever it may be. So I think really in conclusion, um, the actual net costs of obesity are not that great. And because it's almost impossible to recoup them by taxing anything in practice, 
it's better off just not to worry about it. It's not that big a deal. Very interesting. I mean, and anecdotally, I travelled to Poland for many years. In fact, my first trip was in 2004. And when I went out there, they didn't have very many fast food joints. And what I noticed was most people look really thin. And then over the years of going over there, um, now, again, this could just be coincidental, and I'm not sure exactly what caused it, but there were more and more fast food joints. And then you notice that the population visibly were putting on weight. And so personally, I attributed that to fast food joints. And whilst you might say, well, it could have been lots of other things, Polish food itself is is very fatty. It's like we're, to we're told that that's bad food, but actually it's it's really not. Fat isn't itself a bad thing for people to consume. Um, it's the amount of calories and the amount of exercise that you do, but it's also the amount of times that you return to these places and, and why. And so you can consume a whole lot of sugar and calories very quickly in a in a can of drink, a can of fizzy drink. There's so many calories in there that doesn't necessarily fill you up. So from my own just sort of anecdotal evidence, I just made the assumption, and I admit that perhaps this could be incorrect, but it, it felt pretty strong to me that whenever you see fast food joints moving into an area, they the country or whoever, the population, will start to put on weight. And is there... Is there a correlation there? Is there something we can prove? I, I, yeah, I'd be pretty cautious about inferring causation from correlation in that instance. Um, I mean, actually, people's body weight has been rising for a century, in fact. Um, it's not something that's just happened since the 1980s. What's happened since the 1980s is that that century-long rise in body weight has started pushing more and more people over the line of obesity but the line of obesity is fairly arbitrary anyway if we the the, the body mass index um, benchmark for for obesity threshold for obesity is 30 um, but if it had been 28 we would have seen the rise in obesity happen a couple of decades earlier if it had been 32 it happened a couple of decades later um, so it's a little bit misleading to look purely at the obesity figures. If you look at the body mass figures, you can see people have been getting gradually heavier for a very long time, mm. probably due to two things. One, just the general affluence. People are not, generally speaking, going hungry. And two, the gradual decline in day-to-day -day physical activity, not just people exercising in fact exercising really has got nothing to do with it leisure time exercise never used to really be a thing because people didn't need it because there was so much physical activity ingrained in their daily lives but it's the uh, general activity of you know walking to work rather than driving to work of you know, even domestic appliances around the house everything that's kind of labor saving and in particular in people's jobs you know people just simply haven't got such physical jobs anymore. Um, far more people are cooped up in offices. So they're the two big changes over the last hundred years. I, I I dare say that fast food has a little bit to do with it. I mean, anything in theory could have a bit to do with it. But sugar consumption has fallen in Britain uh, by about 20% since the 1970s. And although people go on about the out-of-home sector, 
and restaurants and fast food restaurants in particular, it's still only about 15% of people's calories they're getting from eating outside the home. You need to really be looking at what people are eating in the home um, and also, I think, physical activity to see what's really going on. And the evidence, which often surprises people, is that People are, cons- people are consuming fewer calories in Britain today than they were in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, obesity rate was something around 5%. It's now about over 25%. So I think you need to be looking primarily at the physical activity. Campaigners don't tend to go on about physical activity very much, even though there are so many health benefits to it, even leaving um, kind of weight loss aside. And I think that's because there's just no way of the government regulating it. And you haven't got a big corporate bad guy you can't really blame the television industry or the sofa industry very credibly. Mm. Um, and you can't tax physical inactivity. You can't ban advertising for physical activity. So the campaigners tend to go to the battles that they can fight. And that tends to involve calories in rather than the calories out. Isn't a large part of the, the problem here, Chris, that, that politicians have to be seen or feel that they have to be seen to be doing something. But in doing something, they often make the problem worse. The the the, re, the 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 specific book I I'd cite, and I'm trying to remember when I first came across it. Are you familiar with a book called Forty Centuries of Wage and Price Controls? No, I haven't read it. So Forty Centuries is is something that was co-authored by Eamon Butler, who I think is with the Adam Smith. Yeah, yeah, great man. But 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 Forty Centuries, as as the sort of the the, the clue is in the title, go, is, I think the full title is Forty Centuries of Wage and Price Controls: How Not to Fight Inflation. But essentially, this is a very uh, it's it's a very the 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 PDF of this you can you can get for free download from the uh, the Mises Institute in the States. But it effectively is saying that for all of recorded history, governments have attempted to manipulate the economy. They've tried to massage prices and tried to tried to prevent inflation. And whether or not they've been remotely successful, there is always unintended consequences. So whatever politicians, they're like the anti Midas. Whatever they touch, it doesn't turn to gold; it turns to dust. Yeah, um, and that's you know generally what economists would assume. It's exactly the same in this area of nanny stateism as it is with any other area of the economy. That generally speaking, unless there are market failures, things are going to work best if the government stays away. That's just the reality of it. But of course, governments can't resist interfering. And it's incredible to me how so many bad ideas keep coming back and coming back. Even this um, modern monetary theory thing. I mean, who would have thought that printing money would come back as an idea, as a long-term way to um, save an economy? Uh, You've got socialism coming back in a big way on both sides of the Atlantic with very significant numbers of people. You've got rent controls being back on the agenda, you know, just the and and, and of course, more protectionism. Um, You know, just all the stuff that economists are agreed on. Politicians are looking into again. Oh, sorry, not agreed on being bad. Um, politicians are looking into again. They they never learn because it's yeah. There's a constant temptation to interfere, and with this public health stuff, um, there's a very great temptation to interfere because. Um, so few people really understand the unintended consequences of it, or, or give it much thought, or care very much, um, and most of these policies. You know, whether it's minimum pricing or plain packaging or the current food reformulation or advertising bans, um, you know, they're, they're relatively minor things that don't have massive, obvious, unintended consequences most of the time. And politicians can feel good about 
introducing them and they get themselves on the front pages for uh, a day here or there. They get people talking. Um, they kind of affect most people's lives, but not in such a massive way. And it's this salami slicing of liberty that's always concerned me. And this is really what Velvet Love, Iron Fist, you know, the title alluded to. Um, you can you can remove a lot of freedoms uh, if you do it gradually. I mean, smokers have seen that over the years. I mean, we're just smokers are in a position that if you told them that, or even if you told anti-smoking groups 50 years ago that this was going to be how smokers would, were treated and the price of a pack of cigarettes was going to be 10 pounds, they wouldn't be able to smoke them anywhere and there wouldn't even be any branding on the pack. No one no one would have believed you. And the anti-smoking group surely would have said, well, that that's absolutely enough. That's, that's beyond our wildest dreams. But actually, just this week, they've introduced another um, range of proposals. They want to raise the age of buying things to 21. They want to censor TV programs which show people smoking. It really never ends. Um, and there's a certain amount of public choice theory involved in that the, the, there isn't ever an incentive for a professional government-funded pressure group to say, job done. So what what is the kind of ideal situation for you? I mean, how would you... We know that cigarettes are bad for you, but how would we have found that out unless there was research into it and then the government stepped in and, and made these these sort of measures to protect people from it? I mean, obviously, once people know that cigarettes are bad for you, then the choice is yours. But before that, the industry could be selling you a product that you have no idea that's bad for you. Yeah, exactly. And that was a classic market failure, right? That was information asymmetry. And that absolutely justifies government action and the government did the right thing in putting warnings on the packs and running campaigns to tell people about the risks and they had to do that for a very long time because there was a campaign of doubt being waged against them by the tobacco industry um so yeah i think actually that's a very good example of a market failure where the government had to do something to educate the the population but now the population is absolutely educated right you know everyone knows about the risks of smoking and there may be a handful of people who who don't believe it or think that the risks are are exaggerated or whatever um but the government couldn't have done any more and i think it's reasonable to say now that everyone who's smoking um is doing so in full awareness of the risks and started smoking with full awareness of the risks in in nearly every case um so Everything else that's been done and has been done over the last 10 years, it's just been naked paternalism. It's been trying to force people to stop smoking, even though they, they quite like it and they feel happier smoking. You've, you've mentioned the words freedom and liberty. Would you consider yourself a libertarian? Well, I consider myself a liberal, really, but seeing that word has been snatched away from us on uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, I, I often use the word libertarian just because it makes things clearer, you know. But yeah, I'm a free market liberal, free markets, free trade, free speech. Because the, I mean, Paul and I often talk about um, matters financial on the podcast. And the, I suppose the issue for me is that things like left, the left versus right, don't, don't seem to sort of do justice to the nature of the debate anymore. I'd say it's much more about uh, whether it's here in relation to Brexit and whether it's in relation to our own politics and economics or it's across the the um, the Atlantic, the the issue is really about small big state versus small state. That yeah 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 I totally agree yeah. Um, I it's it's quite frustrating um, for me because 
it is, I, I, it's, I've always thought it's kind of ridiculous to polarize political views in with just two options, right? Left or yeah. right. So the IEA sometimes gets referred to as a right wing think tank. Well, we're not, you know, I mean, there are right wing think tanks out there. There are conservative think tanks out there. Um, but we're not one of them. You know, we are a liberal think tank. We have all sorts of disagreements with conservatives. Uh, and we obviously have nothing whatsoever with the far right, which would seem to be our sort of next door neighbors if we're right wing. We are, I wouldn't call ourselves a centrist um, think tank because I don't know what centrist means either. But it yeah. seems if we're going to pigeonhole people, we should have at least three options. There should at least be, uh, you know, socialist, liberal and conservative. Um, that's actually the split. Now you can go beyond that and say, well, there's a, there's a far left, there are the, the communists and the, the, the far right, the, the nationalists and the populists and so on. But at the very least, I think there should be free categorizations because liberals and conservatives have all sorts of very important fundamental differences. I'm not sure you could call the Conservative Party necessarily a right-wing party anymore. They certainly don't seem to be behaving like it. Uh, no, not in most respects, no. Um, you know, the, the politics is in a state of flux at the moment, you know, there seems to be a realignment going on and there needs to be a realignment going on because, uh, you know, a two party system cannot reflect public opinion for the reasons I've just explained, you know, there, there are, there are not two blocks of people anymore. There's not the kind of, you know, the socialist workers and the conservatives. So there is a realignment going on with this independent group, which is saying it's centrist, but it's actually center left. Um, and really, there should probably be about five parties that would, uh, and we probably would have that if it was proportional representation. There should be a kind of a Trump-style, UKIP-style populist party. There should be a hardcore socialist party, which is essentially what the Labour Party is now. Um, there should be a centre-left party, which is essentially what the independent group is. There should be a genuinely liberal party, which the Liberal Democrats are not. Um, and there should be a conservative party, which the conservative party is not. Do you think uh, Brexit might end up destroying the two-party system then? Well, with first past the post, it's it's always kind of difficult to see how that happens. Um, the fact that you've got these 13 MPs have gone up, gone off to form the independent group suggests there might be something in it. My colleague Stephen Davis has uh, been saying for years um, that there is a there has to be a political realignment. Um, that you get a political realignment every few decades, and now is the time. Uh, I, I recommend anyone checks out his YouTube videos on on this. He's been uh, very accurate, actually, in what he's predicted so far. Um, I I tend to be a little bit less prone to thinking you're going to see radical changes in politics, but it does seem to to me that we're getting to the point where that needs to happen. It's just that first past the post makes it really difficult. Um, if you look at UKIP, you know, the four million votes in an election to get one MP, it's a pretty thankless job trying to get something started. But if the Conservative Party isn't going to be um, conservative, if the Liberal Party isn't going to be liberal, and if the Labour Party is going to be so far off to the left that it alienates most traditional Labour voters, then yeah, will, what, what do you do? I mean, it seems that something has to change. So with regard to the um, the nanny state, and looking at the markets as they are today, do you feel that the the, the government there's a kind of parallel between the, the two areas where the government feels a need to protect the markets in the same way that it feels the need to protect the individual? And what do you think the remedies are to the, the current state of the markets at the moment? Well, I, I just think that a lot of this nanny state stuff um, is it's not left or right either, you know, and 
a lot of it is done, particularly by the Conservative Party, to kind of fill the obvious um, gap in its political intelligence and thinking, you know, that it doesn't really believe in anything anymore. And this is the kind of stuff you resort to when you haven't got uh, much of a vision of how you want things to be. Um, and it tends to be popular across the board for the reasons we've already kind of alluded to, which is that it makes people feel better about themselves for a day or two. Um, but yeah, it's, it's this kind of micromanagement of people's lives, which is very appealing to politicians who haven't got a bigger vision of society. Um, it's not coherent. You know, it, it doesn't really fit into any particular ideology, unless your ideology is kind of authoritarianism. <laughs> um, and, so it kind of persists as it's almost, you know, like um, like light relief for some politicians to get involved with this, um, because you can picture the world in simple goody versus baddie terms. You can portray yourself as standing up to big business when actually all you're doing is, you know, stamping on um, generally voiceless individuals. Um, and you can imagine yourself to be saving thousands of lives at the stroke of a pen <clears throat> when, of course, you, you're doing nothing of the sort. You're just being a, a nuisance. So you were, you were writing Velvet Glove Iron Fist, obviously, during the financial crisis because it's published in, in um, June 2009. So you're watching this big crisis unfold. How do you relate the, you know, the what's happened to the market since then to the role of government like how how much do you think that they are responsible for turning everything around and it, you know indeed if if printing money was such a bad thing and i'm not saying that it it is or isn't i mean personally my view is that it is a bad thing but it, printing money has worked since since then to prop up the system what exactly well has it i don't know i mean we haven't got the counterfactual have we um it, it may have done and it's to be fair, quantitative easing is not quite printing money, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's it is very close to that. I don't know if it, if it's worked or not. I mean, it mm. seems to me, and I don't claim to be an expert in this area, but it seems to me to have mainly just inflated stock prices. Um, it never seemed right that the stock market was doing so well throughout this period of recession and really slow growth. Um, so yeah, some of the MMT people will say that the enormous amount of quantitative easing during and after the crash proves that actually it doesn't cause inflation. Well, actually, if I recall correctly, we had inflation above 4% for a while at a time when there was very little demand in the economy and almost no growth. Um, that's excessive inflation. And then you had this rise for years in, in stock prices. So it seems to me that the inflation happened in the stock market. Um, and actually, the, the printing of money did exactly what you would expect. Well, what I love about this is, is when you get someone like Mark Carney at the Bank of England saying that QE has been this massive force for sort of social equality, and then you think, well, hang on a second, who's benefited from these rising asset prices? People who already had assets to begin with. If you didn't own stocks, if you didn't own prime London property, you haven't benefited from QE one iota. All that has happened is you've got zero interest rates on your you know, modest amount in the bank. You're, you're, you're objectively worse off. And on top of that, you're absolutely right, Tim, and time will tell us whether it has been the right strategy because it's all well and good saying yes markets have risen house prices have risen and doesn't that give you a fuzzy warm feeling but actually you're absolutely right what about the people who are trying to get on the property ladder who can't and what about 
the overinflated stock prices, which will then eventually correct and then cause potentially an even bigger crisis than we saw in 2008. Yeah, I quite agree. Um, but we, we will never know. I mean, the IEA was about the only organization in the world at the time saying we should just let the banks go under. Um, now that is the kind of the, the left wing position. Um, uh, but the, the, the left wing critique you know, if insofar as they, they ever make it, is is correct that you know th- this was socialism for the rich, mm. um, and if we had to do, uh, you know, if we had to have a Keynesian stimulus in two thousand eight, two thousand whatever, twelve, what however long we were printing money, um, we really it would have been better to do Milton Friedman's helicopter money than it would to to do it the way Mark Carney did it. We should have just you know. Give it to everybody. Put, put, put 100 quid through everyone's letterbox would have been a much better way and a much fairer way of doing it and probably much more effective because it, did, it, it didn't really increase consumer spending. You know, we, you could see that. It was Ed Bowles was right all those years. You know, the economy was flat. It didn't get going. Um, it's it's wrong for left-wingers to say that, you know, we had austerity and you know, we, we, we cut everything. We didn't. We spent an unbelievable amount of money. You know, government the deficit was well over $100 billion for a few years there. Um, it just wasn't reaching, or most of it wasn't reaching the general public. We were engaging in these stupid schemes like Alistair Darling's um, – what was he doing? He was giving people a huge amount of money if they part exchanged their car for a brand new car. I mean, what was, what was that supposed to do for, for the British economy? Um, so, yeah, we spent a huge amount of money, mostly in the wrong places, and it didn't really even have the effects that was intended. Other than that, we didn't go into a depression, but nobody knows for sure that we would have gone into a depression. Well, as in you the say, yeah, as you say, there's no counterfactual, so we'll We'll never really know. The thing that the thing. Well, that you can look at countries like I mean, I think I believe Poland didn't bother doing anything like that, and Poland did better than we did. You know, so there are other countries that didn't decide to spend a huge amount of money, and the consequences were more or less identical to the, the in America and Britain where they did. The thing that really concerns me is that you have this sort of perception, I think, particularly among the young, that the whole system's been rigged and that capitalism no longer works. But the, the reality is that we don't really have capitalism. We have kind of crony warped capitalism which is not the same thing so you're not the same thing as free market capitalism but yeah the the, the the political tide is you know the kind of the bernie sanders uh level of debate is seems to be sweet uh, we had um i'm trying to think of, of who it was but we had a guest on the, the podcast last year um and it was an economist and he he was referring to i was asking why you know why is why is left-wing why is socialism slash marxism so popular in 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 the educational system, and he, he referred to you know the long march through the institutions. This is where it starts. So you, you, there are now all these um, institutions throughout British society, um, the schools, the universities, and include the BBC now. And you know you you try getting a let, let's say a sort of something like, more like a free market capitalist perhaps right of center perspective there. And it's impossible. You just simply cannot, you cannot hear that, that viewpoint anymore. Yeah, there's, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a real problem. Um, and a lot of people who come out of the schools and universities ultimately kind of change their mind about this. And the left wingers are wrong. Um, just as in fact, the, um, well, they change the, their mind. Once, they, once they start, once they start working and start having to pay tax, 
Yeah, exactly. Whereas the university faculty never, never do. And you can see why they believe in redistribution, because if you're in that world, then money literally is distributed, right? You have to apply for grants and it's a, it's a zero sum game. So yeah, it's kind of depressing, uh, you know, how much of a general center left or far left kind of, you know, how many, how many assumptions in, even in the BBC, which I think genuinely does try to be fairly neutral most of the time, it can't help but be swayed to the left because that's just the, the centre ground um, among you know in that kind of world. I th- actually think that probably the worst thing David Cameron ever did was use the term austerity um, for something that clearly wasn't austerity. Because now, you know, this is now going on ten years, right? Um, so you have people who are eighteen year old, eighteen years old, who think that their entire lives essentially you know has been lived under austerity and they think that if they can get in a, the labor government will go back to whatever they imagine we were spending before the reality is we're spending more or less the same as we did before um do, do they do they really think that they really think yeah, that we're in austerity is that well, yeah but we, you can't blame them when the prime minister who you know introduced these um spending cuts called it austerity it it was never made clear that yeah we are going to cut budgets in certain areas but overall spending is going to be higher than it's ever been and so you can't blame people aged you know 18 25 whose entire kind of sentient life has been spent under what they've been told is austerity and presumably they think that if they kick the government out, we can start spending twice as much as we are now. You know, instead of spending 41% of GDP, we'll spend 82% of GDP. So they've been sold a lemon. Um, what's remarkable is that they were, they've been encouraged to believe this by the actual government. You know, the government made a huge mistake under Cameron and Osborne in talking tough and not actually doing that much. Clearly, the politically sensible thing to do is to do the opposite, right? You make big cuts, but you kind of window dress it. They did the opposite. They said, oh, we're making savage cuts while actually barely cutting the overall budget at all. Given that um, you've you've studied the past, and as Winston Churchill said, if you want to understand the future, you've got to study the past. Your book, The Art of Suppression, Pleasure, Panic and Prohibition Since the 1800s, what what could we learn about what's potentially coming in the future from what what you've studied from the past? Um, just that it just keeps going round and round until somebody ultimately gets something prohibited entirely, and then that causes chaos, and we go back to experimenting with liberalism for a little bit. You know, that's basically that's basically the lesson. Um, it's nearly a hundred years now since America introduced alcohol prohibition. And just the other day, I read that somewhere in San Francisco is talking about the total prohibition of tobacco. You know, we just never learn. Um, we've got the war on drugs kind of falling apart now. One of the really one of the few encouraging things to have happened in recent years, from my perspective, is the legalization of cannabis across about a dozen states of America, plus Canada, plus a couple of other places here or there. That seems to be picking up speed. But at the same time as we're looking at being more liberal on cannabis, we are getting significantly less liberal on not just tobacco, but also, of course, now sugar. Um, And there's still a fight on with alcohol. We've got minimum pricing in Scotland. 
Um, you know, really, from my perspective, things have been pretty grim over the last few years, with the exception of vaping, which in Britain at least has been embraced by public health authorities, and cannabis, which is seems to be on the road to legalization in this country eventually. But we're gambling, you're seeing um, the anti-gambling people have really got the wind in their sails since the clampdown on fixed odds betting terminals was launched. The temperance movement's got the wind in its sails since Scotland brought in minimum pricing. And it's absolutely open season on food. I remember writing a piece about prohibition um, some years ago, and I, I, I remember coming across, it was probably only through something like Wikipedia, but coming across some statistics that suggested that hundreds, probably thousands of people died as a result of basically tainted illicit alcohol, which is a classic example of this sort of unintended consequence. So you ban you ban the legitimate stuff, but since people are going to drink anyway, they'll they'll drink the stuff that isn't you know, made of such high quality or is actually just poison, and you end up killing people. Yeah, and you don't even need to look in the history books to see that. You know, if you turn to page twenty nine of a newspaper, um, every few weeks you will read about dozens if not hundreds of people dying in india where they have prohibition in a few pretty big states or widely populated states it's still happening now um in fact even in britain you'll occasionally read about somebody going blind from drinking a dodgy alcohol sold in some corner shop which is is counterfeit you know it's got a lot of methanol in it and it can cause serious problems so we're still seeing this played out and yet uh, if you read some of the um, tobacco control literature, you'll see that alcohol prohibition is starting to get, you know, the, the history of alcohol prohibition starts to be rewritten by these people because they want to start defending prohibition. So actually it wasn't that bad. And it's only the alcohol industry that have tricked everyone into thinking it was a disaster. In reality, actually alcohol consumption fell. Well, it did. Yeah, there's no doubt that alcohol consumption fell during prohibition. Didn't fall by as much as you might expect, given that the entire industry had been uh, banned by the American constitution. But it probably fell by about two thirds initially. And by the time it was repealed in 1933, it was about a third down or what it had previously been. So, yeah, purely from the perspective of reducing the uh, consumption of alcohol, it was a success. But, of course, that's not why people say prohibition failed. People say prohibition failed because of the St. Valentine's Day massacre and all the rest of it, you know. Um, hundreds, thousands and thousands of people were crippled or blinded or killed outright um, from the consumption of alcohol. And actually, the alcohol supply was deliberately poisoned by the government. This is one of the most extraordinary things about 1920s America, is there was an exemption for industrial alcohol. Obviously, you need alcohol for various things that um, uh, that don't involve human beings consuming it, for you know cleaning and stuff like that. Uh, and people were resorting to drinking industrial alcohol. And so the government deliberately poisoned it. Wow. <laughs> and hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, died as, as a result. And the Anti-Saloon League said, look, that's fine. You know, if people want to break the American Constitution, then, you know, they can consider it suicide. Is there any way, do you think, is, is there any realistic way that we can hope for a, a contraction in the size of the state? Or is this just sort of, at the moment, a pendulum that's only swinging in, in one way? Uh, well, it depends what you mean by the size of the state. I mean, the... I already mentioned the overall spending of government, which is 42%, which of course is not low by you know uh, by historical standards at all. It's a bit lower than it was a few years ago when it was 
nudging 50%, but part of that is because the GDP had, had fallen and we measure it as a percentage of GDP. Um, but what do you call you know, the size of the state? A lot of that spending is welfare, it's pensions, it's the NHS, it's education. Um, now, all these things are run by the state, but I'm not sure it's that meaningful to include pension payments as being the you know the states the, it doesn't represent to me how you know how, how many pies the government has got its fingers in um in terms of direct government control you're actually better off looking at some of this nanny state stuff which doesn't really involve public spending at all it's just rules and regulations and laws and i don't see much of a turnaround on this kind of stuff um unless and this is quite plausible unless we get a change of prime minister and the replacement is uh, more of a libertarian bent. Um, I think that's, I don't think we're going to get much worse than Theresa May. And actually there's, there's a reasonable amount of talent in the conservative party um, more than, you know, people I think understand. And some of the names that have been bandied around as an ex prime minister, not necessarily the, odds on favorites but some of the names uh are quite encouraging um and i i think could possibly just say look we've had enough of this nonsense now uh, and that that's more likely to happen if we get a big kickback on the obesity stuff um one of the things i write about quite a lot because nobody else does is public health england's food reformulation plan um which i think is a looming fiasco for the government public health england uh, under instruction from the government, but with no doubt a lot, bit of nudging from public health England in the first place, is in the process of working with a so in a so-called voluntary agreement with the food industry to greatly reduce the amount of sugar, fat, and salt in food products and the amount of overall calories. Um, and they have these ludicrous Soviet-style targets. Um, the first of which is that we need 20% less sugar in the food supply by 2020. So obviously that's only next year. And by 2024, the food industry is expected to cut calories by 20%. Now, anyone who knows anything about the food making process, or indeed anyone who's ever just cooked something or has some common sense, knows that there is really no way of meeting these targets. There are a few things you can do here or there. You know, you can substitute fat for something else you can take a bit of salt out of a pack of crisps and people don't notice but a 20 percent reduction in calories is simply impossible without just shrinking the products and it's um, presumably also going to make it taste awful it would make it taste awful if they did it but it's going to taste so awful that the food industry just won't do it because no one will buy it uh it's, it's a particularly a problem with sugar uh the the anti-sugar campaign of the last five or six years initially started talking about Oh my God! There's sugar in pasta sauce. There's sugar in a pizza. Who would have thought this? You know, you know, the entire food supply is being spiked with sugar, and we don't even know it. Well, you know, uh, a lot of the sugar in pasta sauce is actually from the tomatoes, and tomatoes have sugar in them. So there's not a lot you're going to do about that. But yeah, there are some products, some cereals, I guess, where you think, well, I'm a bit surprised there's that much sugar in it. I, I would have thought it was a bit healthier than that. Um, and so you can kind of reduce the amount of sugar a bit. But that's not true of things like cakes and chocolates and biscuits. You know, sugar is absolutely integral to them. You can't replace the sugar with artificial sweeteners um, for both reasons of taste and texture and just sheer bulk, right? Uh, artificial sweeteners, 
are a hundred times stronger than sugar, which means that you need one percent of their kind of weight. So what does, what's the biscuit made of? What's the chocolate made of if it's not made of sugar? There isn't an answer. Public Health England have been incredibly simplistic and naive about this. Um, nobody wants to have a diabetic chocolate bar. And so what they're going to get instead is, is just a smaller chocolate bar. Um, and you've read maybe from time to time, you'll have seen stories about, you know, the Nestle and Mars are ripping us off. They made the Easter eggs smaller and Toblerones have lost uh, half their <laughs> weight. All this stuff is Public Health England's reformulation strategy. The companies have tried to blame it on Brexit and raw materials, but that's for the birds. Office of National Statistics looked into this and said, actually, it's got nothing to do with either of those factors. Um, and so what, we, what we've got, in effect, is shrinkflation. And in a few areas, we've got the product just made, made to not taste as nice. So the sugar tax has resulted in Lucasade and Iron Brew and a few other brands uh, reducing the amount of natural sugar and banging up the amount of artificial sweeteners. And that's generally not gone down well with consumers. So I think that's one area where it, there could be a backlash on the way. Is, isn't that dangerous as well? To, to I mean, I suppose that's quite a strong word to use, but we don't know what artificial sweeteners do to you anyway. We know sugar's naturally occurring and therefore we desire it but we don't know the long-term effects of having artificial sweeteners on our system um that's true up to a point um some of these sweeteners have been around for a very long time things like saccharin have been tested and they they do seem to be fit for human consumption um but uh, yeah a lot of people do have their concerns about artificial sweeteners i know a lot of people get headaches and migraines when they consume them uh, and a lot of people just like me just don't like the taste of them and we don't want to have that choice taken away from us, particularly since all of these brands had a zero sugar version before they started messing around with their main brand. They're doing this under government pressure, first and foremost. Um, Coca-Cola has been one of the only brands that have said, no, we're not going to do this because we remember what happened with New Coke in the 1980s. We're not going to mess around with the formula of the world's best-selling soft drink. Um, it's funny enough, just as a quick digression, it actually is dangerous for type one diabetics because these brands under public health england's health by stealth strategy which is what they call it they deliberately try and obscure the fact from consumers that they are making these changes and so actually when lucasade in particular changed its formula with much less sugar you did have type one diabetics who use it as a medicine as theresa maders um, having hypos because they just didn't realise that they'd taken most of the sugar out. So here's a question. Who who funds Public Health England? Well, it's the government and they've got a hell of a budget. It's I'm, I'm, being, I'm being facetious, but I was just having a look and, and the, according to the, the internet, and this is presumably Wikipedia, annual budget, four and a half billion quid. Yeah. And that's our tax money. That's our tax money. And most of it goes to local authorities because um, as part of the so-called austerity measures, the government decided to form this massive quango and give it four and a half billion pound as a way of um, moving public health responsibility from the NHS to local authorities. So now you have the local authorities spending this money at the local level, which in principle isn't such a bad thing, but each of them have a, um, a director of public health. And they're all paid a nice wedge as well, about £150,000 is a kind of average salary for these guys. And pretty much all these people do is go along to the local authority you know, council meetings and lobby for nanny state measures, lobby to 
you know, there's an off-license wants to open up in High Street, let's deny a license because it's encouraging binge drinking, or let's try and ban smoking in parks and all this kind of stuff. So you now have this web of nanny statism, very well-funded, directed by Public Health England, run by these, you know, killjoys on the ground. Um, and it never ends. And now you've got the local government authority constantly lobbying for more money from the, 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 the government, from central government to fund all this kind of stuff. So at a time when you've seen local authority budgets halve, and that is one area where you really have seen genuine, genuine uh, austerity in terms of the central government grants to local authorities, you've seen these public health people um, awash with money. And they are about to face a small cut of about 5% over the next few years, but still a, a huge amount of cash. And that's before you even get to this kind of labyrinth of other state-funded pressure groups who are all um, working together to put pressure on the government. So, yeah, I've written a few things. In fact, only last week um, the IA put out a report which I'd written about this whole issue of government lobbying the government. It happens across the board, not just in the area of nanny statism. Uh, but there's just a vast, vast web of state-funded pressure groups um, getting money from all sorts of taxpayer sources, whether it's the EU, which is incredibly um, generous with our money when it comes to funding civil society, or local authorities themselves, or central government. Um, you know, chances are, if you hear somebody demanding some kind of restriction on tobacco or vaping or food or whatever, um, very often it will be a state-funded organization. And that's one of the things that really annoys me. You know, we started this conversation by talking about the um, the history of these kind of pressure groups. And, you know, it was far, really fun to, to look into these people over a period of several hundred years and see all the kind of eccentric people and the religious zealots who were running these campaigns against red meat or tobacco or alcohol. Um, and those people more or less don't exist anymore now. It's just this uh, kind of third party bureaucracy, which is entirely self-serving. They need to keep finding new dragons to slay. Um, and they're just professional campaigners. And you don't even know how much their heart is in it for some of these people. Some of them are just professional lobbyists who happen to do a job for an anti-alcohol group or an anti-smoking group for a few years before moving on to lobbying for something else. Um, so they're not even as much fun as the original uh, prohibitionists. Maybe the answer is to smuggle in a few sort of sleeper cells, people like Eric Pickles into Public Health England. Eric Pickles actually did a good job in going, going around the country and closing down some of these groups. He was well ahead of the curve on this uh, issue. He was involved round about, I don't know, 2008, 2009, when the Tories were still in opposition. And the Conservative Party put out a list, I think it was a list of 50 things that the government should be cutting straight away to try and deal with the deficit. And one of them was these organisations which are state-funded and they exist to lobby the government. And I think most people would say, yes, that is a very obvious uh, part of government expenditure that we could get rid of. See, a lot of these people are duplicating the work anyway. You know, it's not as if we don't already have a British Medical Association and a Royal College of Physicians and all these other people, which are not, generally speaking, government funded. We've got cancer research campaign and all this kind of stuff, you know, and, and good luck to them. Um, we actually don't need a lot of these organizations doubling up on the work. The reason we do is because it creates a swarm effect. It creates the illusion that there is a huge range of people 
including all these grassroots groups who are campaigning for these, generally speaking, fairly unpopular and obscure policies. And then they go on to respond to all these bloody government consultations. And the government can come out and say, oh, we've got 82% of people in this consultation said they approved of this ban. Well, yeah, because they were just parts of the, the network. There were just, yeah, dozens and dozens of NHS trusts have responded in identical ways. You know, if you ever, if you're ever bored enough to ever look at responses to a government consultation, you'll generally see literally word for word replications um, from various different organisations. One hundred percent of those people who voted remain want to stay in the EU. Funnily enough. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. I mean, what is the point of these consultations? They're a real, they're a real problem because uh, the government is, I believe, legally obliged to launch public consultation every, every time it has a proposal. Uh, but the campaigners are very canny in using them for propaganda purposes in that the government will just propose something and will often just genuinely be seeking um, feedback from businesses before they do something stupid. But just the mere fact that it's gone out to consultation then gives the campaign groups an excuse or a chance to accuse the government of a U-turn if it doesn't do every single thing that had been proposed. And it will always be accused of a watering down in, in the face of business lobbying. To give you one, one example, this bottle return scheme that Michael Gove has put forward uh, a nice idea in many respects. It probably will lead to more plastic bottles being recovered. But actually, there's a major problem with it clashing with curbside collection. All these other countries you hear about, which have a very high return rate from plastic and glass and cans, um, they didn't have curbside collection. So we're doubling up the work. We actually already recover about 75% of plastic drinks bottles in this country already. It's not, it's not a bad rate of return. And if we bring in this bottle deposit scheme, it might nudge it up to 86 and maybe maybe 90%. But it's a lot of money to spend to collect 10, 15% of all the plastic bottles. And in my opinion, it's probably not a great idea because it's just not efficient. But of course, you've got all sorts of people lobbying for it, including the companies that make these machines, in addition to the various you know, recycling companies and organizations and so on. Now, the government has put this out to consultation. I think it generally does want to hear from businesses about how it's going to affect them. It will affect people in all sorts of different ways, and it will affect consumers because from now on, we're not going to be able to put our bottles in our recycling. We're going to have to keep them in the house for a week and then stick them in the car and then queue up the machine and get That's a voucher crazy. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's not a, not a good idea in my view. The campaigners are already saying that the government is doing a U-turn on this under pressure from business because – some of the businesses that are responding to the cons consultation are saying, look, maybe we should exclude glass. We already pick up a lot of glass. Or maybe we should exclude these really big bottles because, you know, a three-liter bottle of Coke is generally not going to be consumed on the go. It's going to be consumed in the household. And if you're in the household, you're going to put it in your household recycling. So if there is a problem here, it's with on-the-go plastic water bottles, for example, that you pick up at the train station and then you don't know what to do with. Um, but just the fact that some businesses are saying, look, we're not against this scheme, but we could probably not include all this, this, and this because it's going to lead to huge costs. It's not going to produce anything. And you get Greenpeace saying, this is government buckling to big business. So it's just by launching a consultation, you immediately put a huge amount of pressure on yourself to do the most severe option. Otherwise, you're accused of capitulating to big business. And apparently, the conservative government doesn't like being even accused of that. What I'm getting from this is that we need a lot more people who have practical experience in the business world working in government and slightly few career politicians. 
Yeah, that would be a very good idea. That's one of the big changes over the years, isn't it? That we've just seen more and more uh, you know, people who start out as spads or whatever, or dare I say, even working in think tanks and then going on to um, to work in, in as, as MPs. Um, Isabel Hardman's book is very good on this. I don't know if you read it, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, I think it's called, or something like that. Really interesting uh, and really quite depressing about the reasons that the standard of our political class is so low. A lot of it comes down to the fact that if you're working in business, why would you want to be a politician? You know, the, the pay isn't particularly great. Um, you've got to take a year out of your life just to stand. And so we end up with the people that we've got. But at the very least, if the, you know, the, the parties aren't going to have many former businessmen in them, at least they could listen to some of the businessmen uh, who are around today, but particularly listen to the consumers. And this is my one of my problems with this state-funded activism issue, is that you've got all these state-funded groups masquerading as civil society. And one of the effects of that is it actually squeezes out genuine civil society. You know, the government never funds actual citizens groups. It never funds genuine kind of voluntary consumer groups or single issue groups. You know, it's never going to fund, you know, uh, the association of pipe smokers, for example, so that the government can hear the views of pipe smokers about this upcoming ban on smoking outdoors. It's going to fund action on smoking and health. So it squeezes out genuine civil society. And you, generally speaking, normal people and normal consumer groups insofar as they exist, they just haven't got the time. Uh, or they can't be bothered to respond to some government consultation, um, especially when the government's probably not going to listen to them anyway. So, yeah, there's a democratic deficit, which is being partly created by the government picking winners, if you like, within the kind of political activism community. Absolutely fascinating. Do you have a strong opinion on, on crypto tokens, cryptocurrencies? No, I don't at all. And people try and talk to me about it. And I've met Dominic Frisby a few times and he's very keen. And I was very excited to see it go up so much last year and quite intrigued to see it go down so much this year. Um, but I don't have any strong views either way. It does seem to me that maybe a currency is not particularly robust if it crashes every time some drug dealing website goes down but that's about it yeah i mean the volatility has been pointed to as being a problem with these cryptocurrencies but it's also a independently valued model that you can't um you can't game and so in the sense that it it steps outside government control and i thought because of that it might be something that you you would be sort of more open to I am open to it. I'm not against it. It's just I never really bothered reading up on it. I just thought I'd see how it goes and see how it takes off first. And it doesn't seem to me like there's been a great increase in the number of outlets that are accepting Bitcoin. Um, and I'm not against it. And I think the, the principle of having a currency that the government can interfere with is a fantastic idea. But it does seem to have many of the features of a speculative bubble. An article I read on a platform called Medium, which talks about the Japanese and how they tend to use hard currency. In other words, they don't use credit cards and they don't use um, debit cards, but they like to carry cash. I don't know if you, you're familiar with that, Tim, at all. Oh, no, that's news to me. I wasn't aware of that. Um, when I was in Austria a couple of years ago, I found the same thing, that it's a very cash-based cash, cash based, uh, society that may or may not be a, a sort of perverse uh, reflection of the hyperinflation they suffered in the 1920s. But Germany is too, I think. It's really hard to pay by card in Germany. It's incredible. 
So what they're saying is in this article, which I will share in the show notes, is that we've got 2020 Olympics in Japan coming up. And of course, you're going to get a flood of foreigners coming in wanting to spend money. And so what they what they're going to try and do is create a cryptocurrency for Japan that kind of leapfrogs our current system. In other words, instead of going from money to debit cards to cryptocurrency, they're going to go from money to cryptocurrency and but make it really efficient. They've kind of looked at all the problems with Bitcoin and the fact that you can only do seven transactions per second and it's slow and expensive um, to be able to do many hundreds of thousands of, of transactions, even more efficient than the current um, system. And they want to bring it in for the 2020 Olympics. So it's it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fascinating experiment. It's going to be one that I think could really propel cryptocurrencies forward, like in the next in the next phase. I mean, I've always thought that cryptocurrencies are a very interesting concept, um, but Bitcoin itself had too many inherent issues with it to, to be a workable model or a replacement for what we've got now. But what they're talking about here, I'm quite excited about. I think that could be at the very least, well worth keeping an eye on to see whether this is something that's going to develop into the future. It sounds kind of a weird way of doing it, if I may say so. It sounds kind of a bit Heath Robinson, overcomplicating something. I mean, presumably they'll still need to have some form of machine, right, to to to, to do the transaction. Well, yeah. So why not just introduce normal chip and pin machines yeah, and stuff like that? Yeah, that's that's possible. I mean, that's possible. But I think they... I mean, they're probably going to have to do it sooner or later. Right? I don't think they can hold out against debit cards and credit cards forever yeah so either do that or just tell people to you know take some money with them i mean yeah. i'm a big fan of hard cash myself yeah um but i i gather now i think last year was the tipping point wasn't it where more payments were made by card than by cash i think i read that somewhere so yeah it doesn't surprise me but personally i think you're always happy with a wallet full of cash it just makes you feel better you know generally uh, and you don't keep getting stuck all the time. My wife had to go out yesterday to get some cash to pay for a food delivery. You're always better off just having some, especially with the cash machines being as they are, £1.50 a go all over the place. That, that is, yeah, that I, is I, true. I digress. I mean, that is true, but we've also got the efficiency. And as, as much as I agree agree with you about cash, um, there is the, the element of being in a queue, say, for the public transport of you know, because people are trying to find change and get change and all that stuff against just being able to tap something that, that automatically debits. I mean, it's that is much more efficient. Um, but I think the interesting experiment... Do you know what what would they be tapping in Japan with this cryptocurrency? I, I, I'm not actually sure. I'm not actually sure how it would work. Just that they, the, what they're thinking is that the, the Japanese tend to like cash and they are also very tech savvy. So they embrace technology probably way more than we do, but yet they're not using this basic technology that, that can run in parallel. So what I think they're going to try and do is leapfrog the, the um, and I'm not actually even sure why. I mean, that's a very good question. Why would they want to do this? Uh, but I guess it's on the basis of efficiency. But I'll share the article on the show notes. Yeah, and you can have Because it's... Um, 
Because I think it's, it will be very interesting for the companies involved to see how they perform. Because the two companies that are involved in this is an American company and there's a, a Japanese bank. And it'll be interesting to see whether their performance is, is kind of mirrored by how well this particular, well, is affected by how well this particular experiment goes. But, but you're right. I mean, you know, what, for people who are traveling in, there's no reason why they shouldn't just use debit and credit cards and be allowed to accept them. But I think the point is that it, they, they're seeing it on a, on a government level that perhaps it's better for individuals to stop using cash. And, and then here we go, the nanny state again. And if they're going to do that, maybe this is the way forward. Um, I mean, that, that's the one, the one reservation that, that I have that many people have about effectively moves to abandon cash, to get rid of cash, or once you force people into a purely um, electronic system, you can effectively uh, force people to, to cope with negative interest rates. Yes. If you've got no physical cash behind the electronic system, then you can basically make the the, the, the going rate for interest minus 2% and, and right. tough, because you've got no way of evading that then if you're forced mm. into an electronic Absolutely. System. That's one reason why why cash always – there should always be a role for cash for anyone that's a, a libertarian. Yeah, I agree. So on that, Tim, media picks, do you think? Yeah, by all means. Do you want to do you want to kick off? I know mean, you mentioned Japan. Do you have do you have another another something else? I I have, um, and this may spark another conversation. <laughs> but I I saw a a documentary about the flat earthers on Netflix, and I just thought it was it was just absolutely fascinating and comedic to watch a documentary about it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. Are you, are you Chris about the the flat earthers? I I know of them. Yeah. Okay. So this is so these. For, are people who believe that the earth is flat and they think that it's... And, and, it, and it isn't. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they think that it's a conspiracy by NASA that the, the world is round, round and it's been faked. And and the theory is that if, if, um, if it gets out that actually the world is flat, then we'll find out everything else that we've been lied to about. Uh, you know, so... As ridiculous as it sounds, there are many people and there's a growing band of people who believe that the Earth is flat. And this kind of charts the beginning of the group that that decided to make this discussion public. And then it's gone into this, this, this wider group called the Flat Earthers that's run by a guy called Mark Sargent. And it's just a hilarious documentary. I mean, it's just so funny to watch. But my own view is that, uh, of course, we know that the earth is round and you might say how do we know that um but w we just do i mean you look out of a plane window you can see that the earth is curved and there's no there's no way that that can be fake the actual evidence that they put forward was was it, it, i don't want to well spoiler alert um one part of the group decided to invest in a laser gyroscope and it, if you spin a gyroscope it will stay completely straight now, if the Earth is round, within an hour, that gyroscope will be reading 15 degrees out because it's not being affected by the Earth's gravity. It will literally just be turned by 15 degrees. So they put some money together to buy a laser version of this gyroscope to show accurately that the Earth is definitely flat and you will not see this 15 degrees um, anomaly, inverted commas. And so, of course... They buy it, cost twenty thousand dollars, and they see that there's a after an hour there's a fifteen degrees uh, angle of uh, of being affected by the fact that the Earth is turning, and so of course 
now they're trying to do more and more experiments to show that that was an error. They were saying there's some other error causing it. And it comes down to the fact that if you take the um, you take the view that he who's convinced against his will is of the same mind, you can't convince somebody of something if they just don't want to believe it. And I think we all run into that with with various arguments about religion and other things. If you if you argue with somebody, it doesn't matter what facts you produce; they'll always just believe what they believe. And they're a very extreme example of this of not believing their own experiment, saying that they would, but they're starting with an end result and they're trying to look for confirmation rather than what science does. It looks at the information and sees what the end result is. So it's it's absolutely fascinating. But my own opinion on it is that I, th I don't think we should try and convince them of anything. I think we should just let them get on with it. I think it's hilarious that that they're doing this. And if if they want to believe that, that's absolutely fine. Let them get on with it. Let them have their conferences. And but if the earth, if the Earth is flat, then what happens when you get to the end of it? You just fall off. Well, they, no, they think that it's um, they think that there's this. What is the North and South Poles? They believe that that represents a barrier all the way round the side of the Earth. So effectively, you you run up against this this sort of ice wall that you can't get past. <laughs> and and it was um, you know, one of the experiments that they were looking at was uh, this guy Mark Sargent was saying I've looked at the I've looked at a map of the earth and I've looked at how planes fly around the earth and you never see them go from far east and to appear on the west I've watched it for 3 days and I've not seen this and then of course <laughs> you actually look at it and you see it happens all the time it's just it's just nonsense it's just so what's what's this program called it's called uh it's called ahead of the curve i think yeah i think it's called ahead of the curve or something like that but and that's on netflix it's it? on netflix it's just just cool. hilarious it's just I'll hilarious i mean I, I you know it was uh it's it's just in the end it all comes down to money doesn't it because once once you've got a group like that and once you've kind of painted yourself into that corner and once you've got all the merchandise and you've got all the followers, then it's very difficult to back out of that. I mean, this guy, Mark Sargent, went from nobody to people like wanting to have their picture taken with him. And, you know, he, he's the kind of god of, of of the flat earthers. So he he can't very well just say, mm, no, it's, actually, it's not right at any point. Um, but uh, and I, I think even if you put him in a rocket and convinced him that the earth was round, he would then come up with some other argument that it was some simulation or it was faked in some way. So you'll, you'll yeah. never, you'll never, you be can't able to win. win. You no. can't win. You won't be able to. So, so that was my entertainment. I thought it was, it was, I thought it was worth a spin and very funny. So Tim, what, what have you got for us? Um, I've got two. So I'm going to go from the ridiculous to the ridiculous. So <laughs> two if, things, if that's possible, <laughs> two things that I've seen, um, that these can easily sit in the category of films. You simply could never watch with your parents particularly the first one. So the first one, they're both by the same director. The first one is The Greasy Strangler. Oh my um, God, I've never heard of that. And, and, the sec and the second one is An Evening with Beverly Luff Lynn. Now, <laughs> Tim, what have the, you been up to? The Greasy Strangler is a 2016 film. An Evening with Beverly Luff Lynn is a more recent 2018 film. The Greasy Strangler, uh, it, there's basically no point even trying to convey the plot because the plot, <laughs> such as there is one, well, okay, so this is this is the, the IMDB plot plot synopsis for The Greasy Strangler. Big Ronnie runs a disco walking tour with his son, Brayden. When a sexy woman takes the tour, it begins a competition between father and son for her love. It also signals the arrival of an oily strangler who stalks the streets at night. Now, Jim Hosking, who's the director, is a Brit, and it, it, it's... Uh, 
un- indescribable is the only way I can describe this film. But it, it is definitely adult material. Uh, it's it, there are moments moments of extreme hilarity, but also lots of moments that are utterly unwatchable. It does feature, for example, fairly frequently a twelve-inch prosthetic penis, and on occasion a one-inch prosthetic penis. At least, at least I hope they're both prosthetics. Um, but it has to be seen to be believed. And for people who like their comedy black, then this is this is right up their strata. The other one is more recent, and he's he's dialed it down. It's again Jim Hosking directed. Um, An evening with Beverly Love Lynn is still surreal, but it's 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 quite quite a bit less offensive than the Greasy Strangler. Fantastic. So the plot to An Evening with Beverly Love Lynn, this is again from IMDb, so that the character uh, who's played by Aubrey Plaza from Parks and Recreation, if anyone's seen that, uh, she plays a character called, she calls Lulu Danger. So Lulu Danger's unsatisfying marriage takes a turn for the worse when a mysterious man from her past comes to town to perform an evening called An Evening with Beverly Love Lynn for one magical night only. Um, they're both extraordinary. An evening with Beverly Lufflin also has moments of extreme humor, but it, it, it's, it's, it's dialed back a bit to, for almost a mainstream audience. But quite simply, you have to see these films to believe them. I, 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 can, I may actually have hallucinated both of them. Fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. Chris, before we get your media pick, I, I just would really love to know a bit more about the book that you, your most recent book, Killjoy, is a critique of paternalism. I can see there's only a few copies left on Amazon, so I'm going to have to get mine in quick before they all go. But could you just tell us a little bit about that before you tell us about your media pick, please? Yeah, happily. I mean, you can download it for free, by the way, as a PDF from the IA website, if, you, if you're happy without a hard copy. Um, it's a book that uh, essentially, it's, it's political philosophy, really, more than anything. Um, but I try and bring together uh, what you might call libertarianism, what I would just call liberalism, and um, mainstream economics. So I look at, uh, well, I start with John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which I think is one of the most important books ever written. And I see if what he says still stands up. People have tried to, you know, kick it and criticize it, but I, I personally think it still stands up. And then I apply what he says um, about the importance of having limits on government and only restricting things if they are causing direct harm to other people. Uh, I, I apply that to these modern. Uh, so-called public health issues that we see today. And I don't say we should have complete laissez-faire. I do accept there is a room for regulation in certain areas. And I explicitly lay out what that should be in a liberal society. And unsurprisingly, it's a lot less than we are currently doing. And you have a media pick for us? I have a few. Um, oh, brilliant. As an, as an article, uh, something I was very impressed with was on the American interest uh, I guess, magazine, uh, an article called The Arrogance of Public Health Advocacy by Ronald W. Dworkin. And uh, just a really fantastic essay, just looking at the ethics and unethics of uh, public health, the kind of thing I really wish I'd written myself. And it does t- touch on a lot of themes that I mentioned in Killjoys. Uh, in terms of viewing, uh, you guys have probably already seen the Fire Festival documentary, have you? I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's on the list. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to raise it up a few notches, given what you've just it- said. It's unbelievable. I watched it two nights running. It's just the most extraordinary documentary in which everybody in it is just an awful human being, pretty much. There's a couple of exceptions, but basically it's like some kind of Brett Easton Ellis novel made flesh, this incredible disaster of this um, very expensive elite 
uh, festival put on by somebody who has no idea what they're doing. It ends up. Is this um, like the Labour? Is this like the Labour Party? <laughs> it's uh, it, it, yeah. It ends up in Barbados. They have a, a storm. Nothing's ready. All these idiots come along to enjoy themselves, and they are totally ripped off and have a thoroughly depressing time. It's just an extraordinary documentary that's on uh, Netflix. And the weird thing about it is, as bad as the people are who are organizing it, one of whom ends up in prison, the people who actually went to the festival are even worse. They're even more annoying. There's caricatures of the worst aspects of modern Western civilization. Um, I also also would recommend just in general the trigonometry uh, vodcast or whatever it is. Um, This is a couple of comedians speaking to... Uh, all sorts of different people, some very interesting people uh, about the general cultural wars that society find, finds itself in today. Um, just a, a good uh, kind of long form interview of the kind that the internet has made possible again after mainstream television decided it was um, too boring for people. So trigonometry, they get into some really interesting topics. You can find that on YouTube. And finally, something that was on Channel 4 a couple of days ago and I think came out last year, a film called Three Identical Strangers. Yes. Did you see this? I saw that last night. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it was fascinating. I mean, without, without giving too much away, it's about some um, some triplets who uh, find each other having been initially separated. What I mean, it was a a fascinating kind of human story and it had elements of tragedy and comedy and all sorts in it. What I found really weird, I don't know if this struck you, is that, I mean, there's nothing new or unusual about twin studies. They're kind of the bedrock of a lot of what we know about the nature-nurture debate. And the whole program kind of ignores the fact that there have been loads of twin studies all over the world for a long, long time. They, mm. they treat it as if it was some weird, evil experiment that happened in one particular place and time, and let's hope it never happens again. Um, it, it was bizarre to me that they, they just never acknowledged that twin studies uh, have been around a long time, have not been all that controversial, actually. I mean, the program does make you think, oh, God, there are kind of ethical issues involved in this, which I must admit I'd never really thought about before when I was reading about the research. But twin studies are very heavily cited because they are really the only way you can test that nature-nurture thing Yeah, uh, in any kind of robust way. I just thought it was odd as if – it was odd the way they just ignored all that and, and treated this particular case as if it was a one-off. But it, a fascinating uh, film nonetheless. I thought exactly the same thing. I thought that the whilst it was – fascinating in all the ways that you mentioned it was also it also felt slightly unsatisfactory that there wasn't a a big conclusion in that regard and uh, because of course there couldn't be yeah like you say there's there's at the moment on on the bbc there's the twinstitute you know the 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 two guys that are doing this in in in-depth study in all sorts of different areas of of, uh things like you know what we eat and uh and exercise etc on twins to see how each group's affected. Now, of course, the, the studies are very small and you can't you can't really extrapolate that information um, or you can try, but it's, it's really long-term studies that matter. But it's still a very fascinating set of experiments that, you, like you say, has occurred in history. So thank you so much for that. Now, Chris, are you on Twitter? 
Yes, CJ Snowden is my handle. Okay, because we like to share, you know, obviously we'd like to fill the show notes and be as helpful as possible to share all the details that we possibly can um, about everything we've talked about. So would you say if our listeners want to get in contact with you to talk to you, would that be the best way or would it be via email? um, I'm not on Facebook or much else, so Twitter is my main uh, medium. Yeah, go for it. Please do follow, get in touch. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. That's a pleasure. Good talking to you. And as ever, thank you, Tim. To our listeners, thank you so much. Have a fantastic couple of weeks, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research and contact a professional advisor. 